Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Hello again, welcome back to Fast Radio Bursts. My name is Connor Stone, and I'm here with a very special guest, Mary Beth Lechek. Can you say hi to everyone? Hi. Thanks for being here and joining us on our podcast. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a quick introduction so everyone knows just how awesome you are. So Mary Beth got a Bachelor of Science in Astronomy and Astrophysics at Penn State University, and she actually got her outreach career started early as a, a volunteer at the astronomy department. She did a master's in education at San Diego State University and then went on to be the Hokulani Imaginarium Manager. Uh, at the same time, she was a lecturer at Windward Community College and then went on to be an observer at the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. Uh, Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope will be calling CFHT. Uh, after that, she became the outreach manager at CFHT and is now the director of strategic communications. So Mary Beth Lechek, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We're really happy to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you for that introduction. I have one tiny change that I guess I didn't catch is, uh, and is that I observed at CFHT, then went to the Hokulani Imaginarium. Oh, I got the order wrong. All right. Thank you. Welcome. All right. So quite a career and perfectly sort of set you up to be a uh, outreach manager and strategic communications director at CFHT. Absolutely. So, so I, I think to get started, um, we should describe a little bit of what CFHT is. Uh, so this, this observatory, maybe you could describe it for us. Well, thanks. And thank you so much, Connor, for having me on. I'm super excited to, to, to join your podcast today. This is, this is a lot of fun for me. So the Canada-France White Telescope is a 3.6 meter telescope on the summit of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And so we are a 42-year-old telescope, or we will be by the time everybody's listening to this. Our first light was in 1979. And so Mauna Kea is one of the premier sites in the world for astronomy. Um, I would argue it is the best site in the world, but I know I'm going to get some hate from the people in Chile. Uh, CFHT has the best site on the mountain. Um, as one of, the, one of the very first facilities up there, we had our pick. And so we have one of the absolutely best sites on the mountain. So currently, we have five instruments. And each of those instruments is absolutely unique in the world. Um, there are sister instruments to two of them, but the ones that are at CFHT are premier instruments on absolutely premier sites. So um, do you want to hear a rundown of our instruments, Connor? I would love to, uh, but I, I think maybe we'll save the instruments themselves for our second segment when we really dive into a bit of the science that we awesome. do. Um, so maybe you could describe sort of the 
uh, impression you get when you're standing next to this telescope up on top of the world? So to get to the summit, it's a bit of an ordeal, as Connor knows, because he's visited, he's visited with me. So our offices, our main headquarters are in Waimea, which is not what you think of when you think of Hawaii. We are located at about um, almost a thousand meters, uh, 2,500 feet. So I know that's a little short of a thousand meters. And it's a ranching town. Uh, so I'm sitting here at my house and I've been here since March because of COVID. And if I look out my window, I see a gigantic pu'u, which is a volcanic cinder cone, and it is covered in grass. And so I live in a very green area um, that's very rural. It's what, not really what people expect when they come here. And, you know, Connor, what was your first impression of visiting our headquarters? Well, I was sort of struck by the... Uh, the lush environment all around and the building just, it's, it's like a pretty open concept. I'm used to living in Canada where the weather is not quite so uh, forgiving. <laughs> yeah, this time of year, so we're in winter. Winter means that it rains a lot and that the temperature is um, cooler. So right now I have on a, a, a sweater because it's damp and a little cool and I have no heat and no air conditioning. Um, and most buildings in Hawaii have no heat, no air conditioning. So when I woke up this morning, it was 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I am not going to do that Celsius math real quick, but it was 58 degrees Fahrenheit outside, which means it was 58 degrees Fahrenheit in my house. Um, so it's a, it's a little cool and damp this morning. And um, I'm absolutely surrounded by cows on a really, on a really windy day or a really quiet day. The sounds of cows when they're on the little hill by my house, you can hear them across the street and cows are really loud. If anybody who lives in a rural community will attest, cows are really loud. So to get to our, the telescope, it's about a 45 minute drive to the um, 3000 meter site, um, Halepuaku, that's the astronomer's residence. That's also where the Mauna Kea Visitor Information Station is located. And because you're going to such a high altitude, you acclimatize there for about an hour, half an hour to an hour, depending on um, who you are and how often you go up. So our staff that goes up on a regular basis, we have our operations group, their job is to take care of the facility and the telescope. So it's a 42-year-old telescope. So they have a fair amount of preventive, preventative maintenance, preventative maintenance that they do on a, a daily basis. So pre-COVID, they would do that four days a week. Now with COVID, you know, we're kind of trying to shrink the amount of time that people are together. So they're up there three days a week and they make sure that everything is running really smoothly. On their typical workday, they'll get to um, Halepuhaku, they'll eat breakfast and, and then drive up. So that, that takes roughly a half an hour. You then switch cars. So at this point, we are in a minivan um, or one of our smaller cars, but usually a minivan. Um, and then you take a larger four-wheel drive vehicle up to the summit. And so the summit access road, and I'm gonna apologize, all of my units are going to be in English. It's the perils of interviewing an American. Um, we, we drive eight miles and the first three and a half, four and a half miles are unpaved. So it's a really, really bumpy road. Um, but the reason that you need four wheel drive is because you're going from 3000 meters to 4,200 meters in eight miles. So it's very steep and the grade is very intense, particularly on the way down. 
So you go on these switchbacks back and forth and back and forth until you reach the telescope. Um, because of CFHT's position, what, what I think is always really beautiful is that you, you take the upper switchback, you pass the um, University of Hawaii's Hokukea Teaching Telescope, you pass the UCIRT, you pass the University of Hawaii's 2.2 meter, you pass Gemini, and once you crest past Gemini at the top of the hill, you see CFHT and nothing else. So we're on the very last site at the very edge of the upper ridge. So that means once you pass Gemini, you see on a clear day, Maui, you see this beautiful cloud deck that's the inversion layer. If you look off to your right, you see all, uh, there's a big drop off and then you see a, a, just a plane that's covered in, in these little pu'us of volcanic cinder cones again and rocks. And if you look off to the left, you see a, a simply stunning view of um, the NASA infrared telescope facility, the Twin Kex and Subaru, and then ocean and clear sky. Um, and if you look down, you see Submillimeter Valley where the James Clark Maxwell telescope um, operated by the East Asian Observatory and the SMA, um, the uh, Smithsonian Millimeter Array, where, where they live. And so it's an absolutely stunning vista. I think CFHT may be one of the few telescopes on the summit that you can actually image. You can take a picture of it and see no, no other telescopes. Um, we also have, we're really picturesque, and so we end up in a lot of random um, pictures. Like if there's snow in Hawaii, there is a 75% chance if there's snow in Hawaii that the image you will see is snow at CFHD. So when you see our dome and you go in the building, um, the, first four, four, the first four floors are offices and our observing room. Um, and then we also have the best kitchen on the mountain. And then you go up and you see the telescope. And we are um, a 40-year-old, as I mentioned, 40-plus-year-old telescope. So we're still the, the classic kind of equatorial mount. So we have a brown horseshoe, um, and then the rest of the telescope is yellow and white. Those colors were selected by a French color consultant when they were building the telescope. And so the idea was to come up with, an, with a color palette that would help boost the spirits of people in an absolutely, you know, kind of bleak and desolate and high altitude environment. How that ends up being poo brown and school bus yellow, I do not understand. But those are our colors. They're, they're very classic colors. And, and you stand there and you look up. And for me, it's the first time I saw it, I was applying for the job at CFHT to be a service observer. And I was just overcome by the size of it, how you can walk around, you can walk around it, you can go underneath it. It's a very, very accessible telescope. If you are, one of the craziest things is if you're standing on our mezzanine level, so you're attached to the dome, if you're standing on there, our dome rotates so smoothly that it looks like the telescope is moving, um, even though you're the one that's actually moving. And what, what we really like to do is take people up on the mez and move the telescope um, towards them. So we have this whole production that we'll do if we have a tour um, where our dome vents open, our shutter opens, the dome rotates, the telescope moves. And Connor actually took, you took, one of the time lapses that I use in almost every presentation that I give of that entire event occurring. So Connor's time lapse really takes a about 10 to 12 minute process of shutter opening, dome vents opening, telescope moving, and breaks it down into what Connor's like, 
a minute, maybe a minute and a half. And so I use this in almost every presentation that I give so that people can kind of understand how the telescope moves and how the telescope works. Yeah, it was, it was just over a minute for the, the total video. And that, that was my first time seeing that whole opening production. And I, I thought it was really quite incredible. I was, I was struck by how gracefully this behemoth moves around and points exactly where it wants to point. Uh, so that was really incredible to see. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for that time lapse. Um, <laughs> the thing that really astonishes people is the telescope is absolutely silent as it moves. And so the dome is noisy. It's, I mean, it's a 40-year-old dome. It's very well-maintained. And that is a shout out to our, our ops crew. They take care of that dome. So Sazen, Tyson, Les, um, and our electrician, Steve, our summit foreman, Casey, they make sure that that dome operates smoothly. And all of that is controlled by PLCs, which is done by um, uh, grants. So this whole combination, this team, makes sure that that dome runs really smoothly every night. It's still noisy. Um, the telescope, when you're up there, you hear this like noise. And that's just to let you know the telescope is, is about to move. But I've had many a tour where the person turns around and the telescope is coming towards them because it moves so very quietly. Now, we no longer observe from the summit. So when I was a service observer, so I did that um, from 2003 through 2010, so about seven and a half years, um, I've spent about 600 nights on the summit of Mount Kea. Um, in our control room on the fourth floor, I used to operate the instruments. We had a, an observing assistant who operated the telescope. Um, in 2010, so about a decade ago, we combined those positions and moved it to Waimea. So at night, everything is being controlled in our remote observing room in Waimea by one person. And so if you're sitting in that observ uh, yeah, remote observing room, what happens is as the telescope moves, you actually hear an artificial slew noise. And that slew noise is um, related to the, the, the motors. So you hear this like whining noise kind of amping up as the uh, motors amp up. And then you hear this whining noise kind of just come down as the telescope is slowing down. So it's a completely artificial noise to let the observer know that the telescope is in motion. I mean, I guess that's helpful for keeping track of what's going on when you're so far away from this giant machine that you're controlling. Yeah, it's, uh, it was even helpful when you were on the fourth floor because you were never, um, the way you know, that astronomy has evolved over time, you're no, even when I was observing, you're not standing next to the telescope. So um, when you're on the fourth floor and you hear that noise, you know the telescope's in motion. Similarly, when you're in Waimea, it's, it's pretty cool. That's great. And it's, it's cool that you can run the whole telescope from uh, down closer to sea level. It's probably a little more comfortable that way, as cool as it is to be able to go up on top of the mountain. Um, and maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about why put the telescope up on the mountain at all. Uh, you did say that it's one of the best sites in the world, and maybe some people in Chile will disagree with you, but uh, maybe we should just uh, mention why why you go up on top of a mountain at all for one of these telescopes. Yeah, so as I do that, I really want to mention, you know, before we talk, let's talk about the entire mountain. So the entire mountain is a very special site for many, many people, but specifically Native Hawaiians 
No, um, I know many, some would tell you that the site is sacred. Some would tell you that it, it's a very special place to them, um, but wouldn't, wouldn't use the word sacred. I work with a, a fair number of um, Native Hawaiians and it's, it's a really diverse opinions. Um, there are some people that are, you know, absolutely adamantly opposed to telescopes who are Native Hawaiian. And there are some people who are Native Hawaiian and work at the telescopes and absolutely support them. So I just want to highlight that there's a, a, a massive diversity of opinions. However, Mauna Kea is, to many people, myself included, one of the most amazing places in the world. So Mauna Kea is a dormant volcano. Um, there are still magma chambers. We actually had a 4.5 magnitude earthquake that was 16 miles down in this, under the, the surface of, of Mount Ikea off of one of the flanks that I was in the office for the other day. So I'm there with our safety officer preparing to take uh, my CPR test and earthquake occurs. So um, because all of this backstory is prelude to the shape of Mount Ikea, Unlike many volcanoes, when we think of them, we often think of like, you know, Vesuvius or, or Mount St. Helens, something that's uh, a very big eruption. The Mauna Kea often does have those smaller eruptions, but no longer. It's been dormant for um, over 10,000 years. And there are deeper magma chambers in the, under the surface of the mountain. But it has a, overall a sort of sh shield shape. So it's a shield volcano. It's shaped like, if you can almost imagine, like a Roman centurion's shield laid down on the table. It has a very smooth shape. And because of that very smooth shape, you get a really nice lamer flow of air over the top of it. So because we don't have a lot of ragged mountain peaks, like you would do you know, in the Canadian Rockies or the Andes, where you would get whirling and twirling and vortexes of wind, Mauna Kea just has a really smooth flow of wind over the surface. When we have storms, it kicks up to um, like 100 knots. Um, it, kick, it kicks up, like, don't get me wrong, on a windy day, it's, it's windy. But on an average day, we get this really nice flow of air, which flushes out the, the sea. Also, because we are at such a high elevation, we're looking through about 60% of the Earth's, or we're looking through 40% of the Earth's atmosphere as opposed to sea level. So if you look at the barometric pressure of Mauna Kea on an average day, it's in the mid-600 mid um, millibars. So it, we are at a much higher elevation, which means that we're looking through less atmosphere. So we have less twinkle in our stars. It also makes Mauna Kea exceptional for ultraviolet imaging and radio and submillimeter imaging because with the ultraviolet, we're so much higher that we're getting more of the ultraviolet light from uh, space. Also means if you're outside working in the daytime, you definitely need sunscreen because you will get sunburned faster. So that means that we have absolutely exceptional ultraviolet seeing or UV seeing. And because we're at a higher elevation, there's less water vapor in the atmosphere, meaning that the infrared and submillimeter and radio facilities have less interference from water in the atmosphere. We also have an inversion layer. So an inversion layer is where the cool, dry air of the upper atmosphere meets the warm, moist air, tropical air of the lower atmosphere, and they form a cloud layer. That cloud layer is generally around 2,000 to 3,000 meters. And so that means that the summit of Mauna Kea is very dry. 
I've been up there on days where there's 5% relative humidity. You can actually feel the water leaving your body. It's a very weird sensation. And so um, it's, it's very dry. So it's very dry. It's very high. So we get much more um, ultraviolet and radio light. It's also very dark. So Mauna Kea is one of the darkest places in the world. While we have um, some lights on the Big Island, the Big Island Light Ordinance is actually pretty strict. Our street lights point down, and Connor, you saw them when you were here. They're kind of a funky color. What, what color were the street lights when you were here? Because they did change the light color. So I'm, I'm curious what, what they were, if you remember. Um, I remember some very yellow-looking lights, which I'm, I'm guessing is intentional, uh, very specific yellow. Yeah, and so we've moved from those, those were our low sodium vapor lights. The county has moved to a shielded LED. So it's still downward facing. It cuts off a lot of the blue part of the spectrum, which is good for both people and astronomy. And so they're kind of this fascinating, like greenish yellow now. Um, most people comment on the streetlights. We also don't have very many, so there's long stretches of highway. Most of the Big Island's roads don't have streetlights. So it's really, really, really dark. We do see the glow from Honolulu. What makes it a darker site than somewhere like Denali in, in Alaska is that we're at a lower um, latitude, so we don't have any northern lights or any sky glow from, from the aurora. So oh, that's, that's so helpful. Yeah. That combination of factors is what makes Mauna Kea a really perfect site for a shop. Excellent. That's some really great information about um, CFHT and, and why it's situated on Mauna Kea. I think uh, we, we've covered the basics that we need. So we will go to our first break and we will be back shortly. Hello. Nick here. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. There will also be links to all of these online channels in the podcast description. We're always happy to talk about the universe, and if you ask a really big question, we just might have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Time to learn more about our amazing universe. And welcome back. So now that we've covered a bit of uh, basics about what CFHT is like and what Mauna Kea is like, it's time to get into a bit of the science and what we do with the CFHT. So you mentioned that there are several different instruments that we can connect to the CFHT telescope. So maybe you can tell us a bit about those instruments and what we do with them. Absolutely. So I, I apologize ahead of time. I'm like a very proud parent of all of our instruments. Um, I have a, a, I feel in my job a, a deep sense of obligation to our astronomers, to our staff, to um, the mountain itself, um, to really explain the science and the work that, that we do. Um, I, it, it sounds weird to feel an obligation to, the, to a mountain, but if you visit Mauna Kea, you, you get the sense of what an incredibly special place this is and unique in the world. And so um, I, I feel an obligation to, to it. So um, as I mentioned, we have five instruments. And so uh, I'll kind of just 
randomly talk about them. The first one I'm going to talk about is Megacam. She is our absolute workhorse instrument. I apologize ahead of time. I, I give sometimes gender pronouns, particularly for um, Megacam. It's the instrument that I worked with for my entire career observing. Um, and so apologies to, 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 to people who are like, that's weird. I kind of think of it as, you know, you have, you have that connection to like a ship. And so um, Megacam is our workhorse instrument. It's on um, roughly two weeks a month centered around the um, dark uh, new moon. So Megacam is a wide field optical imager. It's a 380 megapixel imager that has a field of view on the sky of four degree, of one degree by one degree. So if you imagine four full moons, that's the size of Megacam. And so it's also exceptionally good in the ultraviolet. In the previous segment, I talked about how Mauna Kea is a phenomenal site for you, uh, ultraviolet light, UV light, Megacam's detectors are really good at capturing that ultraviolet light. And so at CFHT as a whole, we operate in what's called Q service observing mode. So let's say, Connor, you applied for telescope time at CFHT. And remind me, what's your area of interest? So I, I study galaxies and scaling relations. Oh, so Megacam's like ideal for you. So yeah. Yeah, let's say so, Connor, you apply for observing time at CFHT, and you are the highest rated program for camp, right? So we are operated by the um, National Research Council of Canada, the uh, CNRS, which is the French equivalent in the University of Hawaii. And so that's 42.5% of our time goes to Canada, 42.5% of our time goes to France, 15% goes to the University of Hawaii. So Connor, you're the top rated program. Back in the day, you would have flown out to Hawaii, you would have taken your observations yourself. And let's say that you were set to observe last night. Last night was not a great night. It was very cloudy. So you would have gotten no data. You would have flown home to Queens, sad. The way that we at CFHT operate now is in Q mode. So instead of, Connor, you flying out for your one night of observing, you stay at Queens. Our remote observers take all of your data for you over the course of the semester, and then you go. So um, that means that we're able to, with all of our instruments, pick and choose which programs for which astronomers um, are observed in any given night based on the weather conditions, the sky conditions, what we call seeing, how tiny are our stars. And so that works out really, really well and, and helps the science of CFHT. So since 2003, um, we've been doing a combination of PI programs, which means programs for astronomers like you, Connor, and large programs, which are essentially surveys over a longer period of time. So a good example of that is our legacy survey, um, CFHTLS, that all of that data can be downloaded. Um, the next generation Virgo survey, um, OSIS, the Outer Solar System Origin Survey, and right now we're working on CFIS, the Canada Branch Imaging Survey, um, along with all of these different PI programs. So on any given night, we're working on CFIS now, that's our Megacam LP, um, on any given night, our observers are looking at the sky, balancing the conditions, trying to figure out what they should be observing. And they can observe in a night 10 different programs from 10 different PIs in three different queues based on the condition. So with our wide field imager, um, a lot of the work that we do is exactly like the work that you just described, Connor. We're taking images of 
galaxies. We're taking images of large fields of view for astronomers who are looking at either really big things or want to find very small things. So another thing that CFHT does exceptionally well with Megacam is we have collaborators at the University of Hawaii who are near asteroid, near Earth orbiting object people, so NEO people. They use the PAMSTARS telescope on Haleakala on Maui and survey the sky every night. It's what PAMSTARS does. And then if they find objects that are potential impactors or just asteroids, they will then send an email to CFHT upload those coordinates night of, usually at like by 4 p.m. They're in our queue for observing um, that night and Megacam does the follow-up imaging on a lot of comets and asteroids. So something that I recently heard was about 50% of all comets and asteroids are discovered in Hawaii, many of them using this combination of PanStars and Megacam when it's on the telescope. Um, since we have a wide field optical imager, we also have a wide field infrared imager, WearCam, wide field infrared camera. Um, and so WearCam is used an exceptional amount by, um, we, there's actually a team at the University, University of Montreal. Um, and Louis Albert is, used to be the project scientist for the instrument scientist for Megacam, uh, for WearCam, sorry, Louis, for WearCam. So it's used a lot to look for brown dwarfs um, and other really cool objects. So when we move to the infrared, we're no longer, we're able to see through all of the really beautiful stuff in a lot of astronomy images. When you look at a picture like our Orion Nebula picture, you see blues and pinks and whites and, and um, dark strips running through them that is not an absence of light, but super dark clouds. When we look at that same area in the infrared, no, we see none of the, very few of those clouds because those clouds are cold. And so the infrared looks for heat signatures in space. And so we end up seeing brown dwarfs, uh, brown dwarfs, many people call them failed stars. I think of them as very successful planets. Uh, <laughs> and so they, they are barbecue grill temperature. Um, we're looking at objects that are, you know, let's say 750 degrees Kelvin up to 1000 degrees Kelvin, as opposed to, you know, a star that's, that's much, much brighter. One of the like signature programs of WearCam is run by um, Mike Liu from the University of Hawaii and Trent Dupuy. Um, and so I have worked with Trent since he was a grad student. So when he, when I started with Megat with, when WearCam was commissioned in like 2008, Trent was a grad student. He's now at Edinburgh and a, you know, I want to say professor, but I'm not sure what his new title is because it's a recent move. And so these two have been looking at 36 round dwarf pairs um for 12 years um and they use WearCam to look at the wide field sort of um space around those brown dwarfs so that when they go to an observatory like the keck observatory and get spectrum or really close imaging they're, they're able to contextualize it um another so that that's WearCam. moving on we've got espadon so espadon is a spectrograph so it is a um, high resolution spectrograph and spectropolemeter, which allows you to look at the magnetic fields of stars. We, so we've moved from wide field imaging where we're literally looking at millions to billions of stars per image to espadons where you look at one star at a time um, and try to determine things about the, you know, the magnetic field. And so, um, the magnetic fields of stars, there are very few instruments in the world that look at that. And so the espadons, 
the Espinon's users tend to fall into two categories, people who are looking at really, really, really bright stars. So in that category, I'm just name dropping Canadian astronomers, would be Greg Wade and the team that he has that looks at these the magnetic fields of super bright um, stars. Then we've got people who look at the magnetic fields and the uh, of really cool, cooler stars. So kind of like M-type stars or newly forming stars. Um, and uh, the there's a team uh, led by Rene Doyon in Montreal that use uh, uh, Espinons for, for, for that feature. So you get a spectrum. And if you do it in the telemetry mode, you're able to figure out what is the magnetic field of that star. Magnetic fields of stars seems like really um, not applicable to day-to-day -day life for the average person. However, I will point out that not a lot is known about magnetic fields of stars and our sun is a star. And so the more we can learn about those magnetic fields, the better understanding of our own sun that we have. And um, certainly that can have a big impact on our lives if the sun decides to have a little eruption. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so understanding that better seems pretty important as well. Um, Espinons has also been used to discover young planets around that are closely orbiting orbiting their stars. And speaking of planets, that trans that that's a nice transition for me that I gave myself into talking about Spiru. So Spiru is our newest instrument. It is an infrared high resolution spectrograph and um, spectropolemeter and velocimeter. So we're hoping to get down to one meter per second, and I believe we are just there, one meter per second resolution using Spiru, which allows for the detection of planets. And so what um, our large program on Spiru is looking at is trying to discover Earth-sized planets around M-dwarfs. So we're looking at cooler, cooler, smaller stars. And when you're trying to discover a planet, the reason that we have, we definitely have the selection effect when we're looking at planets. Many of the planets that have been discovered to date are what we would call hot Jupiters, big planets that are easier to find because that's where our technology is. Our technology is now reaching the cusp where we're able to either through spectroscopy or imaging detect smaller planets around smaller stars. So you see some images, some direct imaging. I, I actually just pushed out and we're recording this before you guys are going to hear this, I just put a posting today on the Mauna Kea Observatory social media about a brown dwarf that was recently imaged using um, a um, instrument at the Subaru Observatory. So what Spiru aims to do is to detect the wobble, the radial velocity shift in smaller stars, smaller cooler stars, allowing them to find smaller Earth-sized planets. And so that is not an observation that you make once. So our Spiru cues are dominated by looking at and going back to these stars night after night after night. There's a particular cadence that we need to go back to them and, and try to detect these smaller planets with. So there is no instrument in the world like Spiru. Um, there is no instrument in the world like Espinon. Um, Espinon's does have a twin, Narvel. So Espinon in French, for those of you that don't speak it, is a swordfish. And then at Pique de Midi is its sister instrument, Narvel. So um, both were created by um, and developed by um, the same teams. And so they're named after sea creatures with pointy bills. Our last instrument is Citel. 
So CITEL is a Canadian instrument. It was developed in coordination with the University of Laval, uh, ABB, Industry, and CFHT. It does have a sister instrument at Observatory Mont-Mégantic, um, but coming to Mauna Kea is a, was a, it's a bigger instrument. It's a huge, huge improvement in the image quality. No offense to my friends at OMM. Um, your site is absolutely beautiful, but our weather is slightly better in the, in the winter than in Quebec. So rivalry there, I hear. <laughs> so CTEL is an imaging Fourier transform spectrograph. So we're going to break that down. It takes a picture of space. So that's imaging. It's a smaller field of view than Megacam. And Fourier transform spectrograph means that through the magical hand-waving math of Fourier transforms, it is able to create a spectrum for every single pixel on the array. So CTEL has 4 million pixels. So that means that with a CTEL um, data cube, you get an image plus 4 million spectrum. And so this is really used to get a, a three-dimensionality and learn more about the kinematics or the motion of an object. So let's say, let's go back to my Orion Nebula example. With Megacam, you get a beautiful picture of the Orion Nebula. You put in different filters and you're able to learn different things about the Orion Nebula, but you lack the kinematics, the, the, the three-dimensionality of that. If we would go with CTEL, you would get an image of the Orion Nebula, but you would also get these slices of data. And so you can actually watch a CTEL data cube like a movie and get a spectrum associated with it. And so you're able to see when you get more H alpha. So the image will actually absolutely flare up. And I realized I'm talking a lot with my hands and this is a podcast and only Connor is seeing this. <laughs> but you know, the image, you know, you, you see a, a change in the image coordinating with the spectrum. And so the large program that is um, currently operated by, uh, that we're doing on CTEL, in addition to all of the PI programs, because remember, we have large programs and PI programs, um, is called Signals. So it's run by Dr. Laurie Rousseau-Napton. So Laurie is one of our three Canadian astronomers, resident astronomers. And um, Signals is looking at star formation regions in moderately distanced galaxies from the Milky Way. And so they're imaging these galaxies and Lori's work focuses on the star formation of moderately um, close galaxies. It's astronomers are very specific. And so we're able, Lori and, and her and her Hui are able to do a whole bunch of science on, on this. And so Lori did her graduate work at Laval. And so she has been with CTEL. And so when we had a vacancy in the resident astronomer position, she applied and, and has been one of our resident astronomers ever since. She joined Dr. Nadine Nanset. So Nadine is a University of Montreal grad and um, Daniel DeVoe. So Danielle uh, went to Laval as well. And those are our three resident Canadian astronomers. We also have French resident astronomers. We have one in the, in the building, so to speak, um, Luke, uh, uh, Luke Arnaud. And um, we just, our other two resident, uh, French resident astronomers, um, Simone and Pascal, they recently went back to France and were in the, the position of, of filling those, those vacancies. You know, COVID really put a wrinkle in that. I'm going to say it's very hard to, to bring people that you want to hire from France to Hawaii in 2020. Yeah, I imagine when you mentioned that you have one uh, astronomer 
uh, one French astronomer in the building, I was going to say, it's like, oh, well, maybe not right now, though. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, you, you've told us some pretty great information about all of these different instruments and how amazing and premier they are in the world. You're clearly very passionate about telling people about this stuff. So um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your job as the Director of Strategic Communications and uh, how you communicate all of this amazing science to the community. Right. Well, I feel like I have the single best job in the world. So um, my job is a mishmash and a hodgepodge of a lot of really different things. So um, as CFHT's Director of Strategic Communications, my elevator spiel, and I completely recommend that every student who is listening to this and everybody who is listening to this have a one sentence or two sentence, 30 second description of your job. Um, it makes like, that's called an elevator pitch and it makes life a lot easier when people are asking what you do. So my, my elevator pitch for my job is I explain astronomy to people. And so people is very broad. It ranges from preschoolers and little kids all the way up to adults, all the way up to, um, you know, I've, I've had meetings with, with members of the, um, you know, Hawaii legislature. I've had meetings with um, people who are, you know, in, in higher positions. And so I explain astronomy to a lot of very different people. Um, the lot of the work that I do is educational based. So I run a program called Monica Scholars. So Monica Scholars is um, unique in the world. You'll notice that's a theme in a lot of things that we do. So MKS is a program where Hawaii public high school students can apply for observing time on the Mauna Kea observatories. So I work with 13 schools statewide. I have a school on every island, although with COVID, I'm really working with a, a kind of a core group of 10 schools. It's how the school year is playing out. It's, it's very challenging when you're, when a large portion of your job is working with schools, watching, watching what the schools in Hawaii are doing is, is very challenging. So right now um, in, in December, when we're recording this, most schools are doing completely online virtual education. They have brought their most vulnerable students in and vulnerable varies school to school. As I mentioned, um, I live in a pretty rural area, so Hawaii is a fairly rural state. So some of the students that are actually in school right now are kids that don't have internet access at their homes. And so um, that program is, is launching the very first year, it's our sixth year, we expected that students would want to take pretty pictures and we've actually been blown away by the depth of actual astronomy work that the students have. They come from a completely different perspective. You know, you often hear the, the phrase think outside the box and these kids have no box. So their thinking is just super wide. I work with credit recovery students. So these are students that, you know, science, they've been told by the world that science isn't their jam. And so they learn that there's a difference between doing science and learning science. Um, a lot of the hot projects that we had last year, like a lot of people wanting to study Jupiter, a lot of kids wanting to study Betelgeuse because it was, you know, it was having that weird dimming. Um, yeah, often we actually did a podcast about the Betelgeuse dimming. So it, yeah, it's definitely a hot topic. It was, and my kids were so interested in it. I was so proud. 
Um, I'm going to wait to see what this year's trendy topic is. Um, so the way that it works is each school has a graduate student mentor. I, I usually go and meet with the students. We talk about their projects. We talk about the things that they want to do. Their teachers assign them, um, you know, look at the astronomy picture of the day to do a little bit of research. And then they write a proposal telling us what they want to do. Um, each school um, receives its own telescope time. So my kids at um, Waikea High School are not competing with my kids on Molokai or Lanai. Um, and so we sit down, myself, Nadine Manset, so our resident Canadian astronomer and astronomy group manager, and our director, Doug Simons, three of us sit down and we read every proposal and we look at them based on feasibility, um, creativity, and originality. So feasibility is where most of our students, we run into most of the proposals that don't get accepted are because they're not feasible. And oftentimes they're not feasible because they want to do something that can't be done in an hour or two of observing time. You know, we have students that wanted to map the dark matter of the Virgo galaxy super cluster of galaxies. I'm like, that is phenomenal. That was a four year large program run at CFHT. So we can't do that in an hour. Um, other times we'll have students that want to observe planetary atmosphere. So this is the kind of work that they that they really, really want to do. And so I am super proud about that. Uh, project and that program that is a large fraction of my time is is working with those students. I also do, um, you know, school visits. Now they're occurring virtually. So they're like school visits where I might talk about constellations or, um, you know, whatever the teacher is interested in. Myself and one of my collaborators at the uh, WM Keck Observatory, we team with the Gemini Observatory and all the Hilo-based facilities to do a project called Journey Through the Universe. So this is another signature project that we have where astronomers, engineers, and observatory staff go into the classrooms and actually talk to kids and do presentations and, and develop those kinds of relationships and do career panels. Um, we also do a, a handful of one-off events that in 2020 I've had, we've had to reimagine virtually. So our Waimea Solar System Walk, um, that's another one that I work with Shelly Pelfrey at the Keck Observatory and, and Carolyn at the IFA Institute for Astronomy in Hilo. So Shelly, Carolyn, and I turn the um, slightly more than a kilometer between the Keck Observatory and CFHT's headquarters into a virtual solar uh, uh, a tour of the solar system. So everything is more or less to scale. I say more or less to scale because for safety reasons, I can't put Saturn, Neptune, and uh, Uranus exactly where they should go. One would be at the entrance to a gas station. I can't put it there. Um, Uranus gets moved every year one side of the shopping plaza to the other side of the shopping plaza um, based on um, whoever's managing the shopping plaza that year. And so the kids go to each booth, they learn about the solar system, they learn about the discoveries that the Mauna Kea observatories have made to enhance our understanding of the solar system. They come to the end, we have a costume contest because we always do it the, the Saturday before Halloween, a full on barbecue. So our director, Doug Simons, insists on barbecuing for everyone at any opportunity. So he makes, he and the barbecue team make 
hamburgers and hot dogs and veggie burgers for everybody who attends. Um, so this year we've been planning a virtual walk. We are almost done. And Connor, when we are done, I will send you some information on how people can, can do it virtually. It's something that can be set up anywhere as long as you have roughly, we do it based on a mile, but you could do it based on a kilometer with or two with, with no issue. That would and be so great. Uh, we, we could certainly share that on our Facebook and Twitter platforms. So, so that would be fun. And so this year, what, what our plan is, is that everything will be spaced out again. Um, and you will come to a um, sidewalk decal that has an image and then a QR code. So you look at the QR code and it's going to take you to a, a video. And so that video is going to be in English and a of Hawaii. So that's um, um, Hawaiian. And you do that for each planet. So that's something that can absolutely be printed out and duplicated literally anywhere on any scale that you want to do. Uh, we also took our costume contest virtual. So that was fun. We had people email in um, or tag us on social media pictures of, of their Halloween costumes. And then we did a virtual online YouTube costume contest. Um, the observatories as a collective, we do a lot of... Um, events together. And so I work very closely with my compatriots at other facilities to plan and organize events. And so all of that is part of my job, you know, that coordination um, between observatories and our observatory stuff. I'm also the chair of the Monica Observatory Strategic Working Group. So that's where we do a lot of forward thinking planning for the observatories. How can we as a collective um, really, really marshal our resources to be more effective. Um, the observatories are engaging on a huge um, community consultation process where we want to go and, and, you know, really kind of invert the paradigm. So normally the community comes to us. And this is a lot of the way that we see outreach. And it's actually even in the word outreach, you reach out. This one, we want to actually go into the community more and really listen to what people want. What are people interested in? What and how can the Mauna Kea observatories be better partners in our community? And, you know, one really great example is the Ahua Hea Noa project. So a translation of that from the Native Hawaiian is to call forth a name. And so this project, you are familiar with the two most obvious versions of it, Povehi, so the, the star, at the, the black hole at the center of M87, and Oumuamua, the interstellar visitor that we saw. So those objects were discovered either primarily in Hawaii with uh, Oumuamua, or, you know, Hawaii played a large prevalent role in it, like with the Event Horizon Telescope and Povehi, um, or M87 star. You really pick the name that speaks to you. I'm definitely biased with Povehi. And um, those objects are the, the flashiest versions. But we've actually had four other astronomical objects that have been named specifically by Native Hawaiian and Hawaiian language experts, so Kumu. So the project started with a Muamua. It's actually a really interesting story. We There was a, a local um, businessman, John DeFries, who's Native Hawaiian, who's like, all of these objects should have Hawaiian names. And the, the director of the Imilo Astronomy Center introduced him to, to our director, Doug. And the two of them were like, this is a great idea. We should, we should totally try to figure this out. Um, let's do it next year. So the reason for that was they, they presented it to all of the other directors who were on board in the fall. They're like, oh, well, you know, 
nothing, not everybody knows that nothing big really should happen during those like end of the year months because everybody's like wrapping up budgets, wrapping up their year, all of the holidays. So like, let's start this in January. And then Oumuamua was discovered. And so Doug, um, so Oumuamua was discovered by a team at the University of Hawaii. Karen Nietzsche called, called our director and Richard Wayne's coat and said, we've got we've got an object that is not from our solar system. And Doug said, let's give it a Hawaiian name. Karen and, and Richard said, yeah, we need a name in 48 hours. And so he called, Doug called uh, Kayu Kamura, the executive director of the Emilio Astronomy Center in Hilo. Um, and she's also, I believe, the chair of Kahaka'ula, the um, Department of Hawaiian Language at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. And her uncle, Dr. Larry Kimura. So um, Uncle Larry, as I often refer to him, Uncle Larry is um, a professor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo in the, the College of Hawaiian Language. And he was part of a massive revitalization of language um, that occurred in the 1970s and onward. And so a lot of the that revitalization of the Hawaiian language and seeing it more in Hawaii and having, you know, Hawaiian language, the colleges of Hawaiian language. Um, Larry, Uncle Larry did a lot of recordings of um, uh, Kapuna who spoke Hawaiian so he could do all of this in like the 1970s and 80s. And so he reached out to the two of them and like, we need a name in 48 hours, proof of concept. And that's where Amuamua came from. And so Amuamua means a, a scout or a guide from a distant place. And so the name is just, it's a beautiful translation for a beautiful name for a beautiful object. And then uh, a group of um, Hawaiian language students met at Imiloa, and there's a whole video on the Imiloa website that's in Hawaiian that, that it explores um, Ahuahea Noa. And they imaged, I mean, they named two other objects too. One was a, a weird moon of Jupiter, uh, Jupiter. And then um, in 2019, July 15th of 2019, a group of um, Hawaiian language kumu and instructors at Hawaiian immersion schools met at the Imilo Astronomy Center for a week of naming two more objects. And then Povehi came around. And so Uncle Larry named that one. And if you, if you look at it, it's um, the, the translation is the embellished fathomless darkness of creation. So the word po is from the kumulipo, which is the Hawaiian um, creation chant. And it's used a lot. And it's sort of the, the unending fathomless void and creation. So if you see Hawaiian words that have, or Hawaiian names for objects and po is involved, it's likely going to be black hole related. That is very cool. And I have to say, I, I think you were right when you said you have one of the best jobs in the world. This sounds truly amazing. And you're in so many different, really incredible projects. But uh, I think we should move on to our second break. And when we come back, we'll sort of circle back to one of the topics you mentioned of how the uh, observatories work together. So we will be back shortly. Thank you. Hi, it's Nick. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. The McDonald Institute, the Royal Astronomical Society, and the Astronomy on Tap programs are all very enthusiastic about bringing the universe down to Earth. 
Mary Beth at CFHD is also involved in many outreach programs for all ages that you should check out. Links to all these online programs will be available in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion. And welcome back, everyone. So uh, Mary Beth told us about some of the programs that she's involved in and how a lot of these programs are sort of coordinated among the different Mauna Kea observatories to work together. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about how the telescopes work together to achieve uh, the best science they can, both in terms of uh, what they do operationally, like physically at the site, and uh, how their science complements each other. Right. So the observatories um, are each independent facilities. We're all nonprofits run by, you know, either universities or governments of some kind. And so, you know, you at CFHT, for example, all of our PIs are Canada, from Canada, France, Hawaii, or one of our associate partners, um, China or Taiwan. Um, if you want to use us and you're an American, you like need to get, make friends with someone in one of those countries and, and be a collaborator of theirs. And that's, that's very common. Now, the University of Hawaii um, Institute for Astronomy has access to all of the facilities on the mountain. And so a lot of complementary science is done by their work. So asteroids are an example. So I mentioned earlier about the partnership between PANSTARS and CFHD. Let's say that Richard Wainscote or Dave Tholen, two of our, our, our big PIs there, they see an asteroid that's like weirdly bright or weirdly faint. They might go to Gemini or Subaru or Keck to actually um, look at the spectrum. Uh, so a bigger telescope is going to collect more light in a shorter period of time um, to look at the spectra of one of those objects. We also have that same thing happen with our Canadian PIs. You know, a great example is the Outer Solar System Origin, uh, Origin Survey Team, OSIS, run by Brett Gladman at University of British Columbia and um, JJ Cavallars at um, NRC in Victoria. So they do something very similar between us and the Subaru Observatory. So they will observe uh, Subaru, Gemini, and CFHD. They will observe our really wide field of view with Megacam. And then if they find an object um, in the outer solar system that they want to observe differently, then um, they will go to Gemini or um, Subaru. We actually had a program called Colossus, the colors of Ossus, that was run between Gemini and CFHD. So this took an incredible amount of coordination between those two facilities, because if Gemini was going on sky on one of these objects, they would call CFHT. We would stop what we were doing. We would go and take either, uh, I believe it was an R-band or an I-band image or a U-band image of the object. We would then go back to what we were doing, and then a set period of time later, we would go slew back and take another image so that they could use CFHT's filter set to complement the work that was being done at Gemini. One of the really unique things that we have is if we look at like collaborators who use the Subaru telescope, they have an instrument called Hypersuprime Cam, the best name of an instrument. I love Hypersuprime Cam. Um, it is not a fantastic detector in the ultraviolet. 
I mentioned earlier that MegaCam is. So if you're a PI and you're using Hypersuprime Cam and you're looking at these gigantic fields of view, you might then come and request time at CFHT to get the ultraviolet to really fill out the um, data that you're receiving. So that's a, a way that we collaborate um, scientifically. We also collaborate on little things road maintenance. So Mauna Kea support services is funded collectively by the observatories. We collaborate on weather. The Mauna Kea Weather Center is quite possibly the best hyper-specific weather center ever. They have this massive supercomputing set in Cheyenne, Wyoming that they're able to run their forecasts on. Um, that is a collaboration with the observatories, you know, that, that's funded in part by, by us. Um, if so Keck Observatory and CFHT, let's say that we have, Keck has an issue that they need somebody from CFHT's expertise on. Um, that person can be on loan for X number of hours. I mean, we get reimbursed, but like X number of hours to help them on that project. If we need hypersensitive equipment, if we need screws, if we need something on that level, there's a lot of inter-observatory cooperation um, at night a lot of chat. The um, uh, respective, um, either we call them remote observers at CFHT, observing assistants, TOs, what, whatever each facility calls them, they have a Slack channel. And at night, they are constantly talking to each other on Slack. Half the facilities are run remotely, half the facilities are at the summit. So it is not uncommon for, you know, one of our, one of our observers, Cam, for instance, so Cam's from Nanaimo, which is why I, I picked Cam. It's not uncommon for Cam to like either Slack or call whoever's observing at Keck because they observe at the summit and be like, so my humidity is being weird. Can you physically look outside? Um, I'm missing a certain angle on our, our webcams. So I'm just plowing in a pitch for CFHD's webcams. They're great. Check them out. Yeah, certainly those, those webcams, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at those time lapses that you, you put out. And it's really cool to watch uh, the weather and the clouds move by all at high speed or watch all of the telescopes open up. That is, that is certainly a lot of fun. And it's great to hear that all of these telescopes work so closely together that you can just call another one and say, hey, can you just take a look in this direction because I don't have a camera for it. That, that's really great to hear. Um, pivoting sort of in a, in a different direction uh, because I, I don't want to skip this before we run out of time. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the future of CFHT. So it's it's clearly withstood the test of time. It's been around uh, since 1979. And I wonder if you can tell me a bit about um, where it's going next. Yeah, so we, we, have, we are in the process of reimagining what CFHT is going to look like. And the idea that's, that's we're working on is called the Mauna Kea Spectroscopic Explorer. So the fascinating thing about CFHT, the telescope itself, is because it was the cutting edge technology of the 1970s, it's very heavy. So, and our dome is very spacious. And so the plan with MSE is to basically remodel the fifth floor up um, and put on that same poured concrete 
so no changes to the to the ground surrounding the telescope a 10 meter class telescope that's dedicated to spectroscopy so it's going to have low resolution and high resolution spectroscopy three or four thousand fibers and so msc is the follow-up to all of these imaging surveys that we're seeing right now. So there's the Vera Rubin Observatory that's going to be coming on sky soon. There's the uh, Euclid Space Survey that's, that's, that will be launching. There's, you know, Gaia. Where is the spectroscopic follow-up to all of those, everybody's favorite survey? And so that's our plan with CFHT. So we have a project office and our project office is split between um, CFHT with Sam Barton, who's uh, the systems engineer for MSE. And then we've got Key Saito and Alexis Hill, who, so Key's the project manager and um, Alexis is our lead engineer. And so they're back in Victoria. Um, the project scientist for that is Jen Marshall. And so Jen is um, at Texas A&M. The deputy project scientist is Andrea Petrick. So Andrea was uh, the resident astronomer from the University of Hawaii at CFHT until just a couple months ago when she moved over to work on James Webb at a Space Telescope. We're just bringing on, uh, on board a new systems operations scientist. So uh, it's not official yet. Uh, at the recording of this, so we will fill, fill you in later on who that is. And so it's a really fantastic program. It's very active. We've got a huge science team um, that is spread around the globe. We've got engineers that are working on this, uh, again, around the globe. And this is something, something that we're looking at, you know, working on at CFHT and coming on sky in the early 30, 2030s. So before we get to that point, MSC will not be built without a new dedicated master lease from the state of Hawaii. And so that means that unlike other projects that um, you know, were, have been planned for at Mauna Kea, MSC is, is not a go until we have that new master lease. And so that is a lot of the work that I do is, you know, I, I joke with Key, everything I do, I do for him. Um, because, you know, a lot of the work that we do and MSC is really building off of 40 years of CFHT in the community. So we look at it as not an entirely new project, but a transition of our efforts um, from, you know, 40 years of CFHT. A number of our staff are involved in, you know, the, the MSC project, myself included. I'm technically their director of strategic communications. And so um, at meetings like CASCA or the American Astronomical Society meeting, I, I wear dual hats and answer questions about both projects. So we're super excited about MSE. And that's, you know, the, the future that we're the future that we're hoping for. Well, that does sound like a great project. Seems like it will fit very well into the sort of uh, expansive range of telescopes of the future and it's very exciting. Um, maybe sort of broadening that question a little further, could you tell us a bit about what the, the future of the Mauna Kea observatories is looking like and um, sort of where, where the collective is trying to take their science going forward? Well, that's a super complicated question. <laughs> that could be an entire podcast. But I think that, you know, the short version of that is the the lease for the Mauna Kea Observatories expires in 2033. And so right now we're really actively 
wanting to see that lease renewed. We want to continue astronomy in Hawaii. Hawaii astronomy is if you look at the sort of um, plots that Dennis Crabtree, um, if you're familiar with Dennis, puts out every year, if you add up the collective um, publications of the Mauna Kea observatories, it's far and away the most in the world. And so we understand that it is a privilege to be on that mountain. It is a privilege to be able to observe the skies and do the work that we do. And with that privilege comes a responsibility. And, you know, we want to make sure that moving forward, that we are working even more hand in hand with the community than we have in the past. And so, you know, I will say 2015, when the first round of um, protests occurred in Hawaii, the observatories, that's when we, that's when we pivoted. We started projects like Mauna Kea Scholars. We started another project called the Kama'aina Observatory Experience where, um, pre-COVID, once a month we, you know, people could visit, uh, Kama'aina, so Hawaii residents could visit the observatories. We, we want to look at new programs. We're working with um, Hawaii Community College on an apprenticeship program for an observatory technician. And um, we're engaging on this huge, like I mentioned, community listening. How do we be better neighbors? Um, the 500 people who work at the Mauna Kea observatories are part of Hawaii. Our entire staff at CFHT lives here. Um, we have staff that were born and raised in Hawaii. Do we need more of those staff across the observatory? Absolutely. Um, we need more local people in leadership positions. Hawaii is unique. Um, you know, before I moved here and, you know, the first couple years that I lived here, people would be like, you only understand it when you live in Hawaii. And I was like, okay. And now it's so true. You only understand it if you live in Hawaii. It's a truly unique place. And the more people that we have who are from Hawaii that we are working with, who are born and raised here, who are longtime residents, you know, that just makes us a better and more richer environment. Um, our staffs, like I said, are part of the fabric of the community. Um, I'm on the school and community council for three elementary schools. I have no children. Um, I, you know, half of a large chunk of our staff are members of the Kauai High Canoe Club and they do paddling. It's a huge thing in Hawaii. Um, it's, you know, we, I, I love working here. I love being in Hawaii. I told my parents 17 years ago that I would live in Hawaii for two years. Um, 17 years later, they stopped. They stopped believing me about year four. Um, my dad actually stopped believing me the first time he visited, which was six months after we started. He looked at me and he said, you're never leaving. Um, and so that is what um, that is what we do. I see myself in, in a really unique position. As I mentioned, I adore my job. I have the best job in the world. I feel a very deep responsibility to the mountain. I feel a very deep responsibility to, you know, the, the keiki of Hawaii. A lot of the work that I do is helping and trying to make sure that I can do what I can to break down those barriers that exist in STEM, exist in the world for women, for, you know, women of color, for um, local people, for indigenous people. Um, I want to break down those barriers the best that I can so that everybody else coming through can do it. And so I, I feel a deep sense of responsibility in my job to do that. And there are many people across the observatories that do that as well. So I have the best job. I have a, it's a privilege to do what I do. And I am thankful for it every single day.
Well, thank you, Mary Beth, for sharing all this wonderful information with us. There's, there's so much to talk about. As you mentioned, there are topics we could do another whole podcast on, and yeah. we, we may just have to have you join us again, because this has been great. Absolutely. I didn't even talk about my work in Canada. So I want to give a massive shout out to Julie Boudac Duval at Discover the Universe. If you are not following Discover the Universe, follow Discover the Universe. It's out of Dunlap. Julie is one of my absolute favorite collaborators in the world. And it would not be fair to do a podcast in Canada without mentioning and acknowledging how much I love Julie. And we'll, we'll have to include a link in the podcast description for that program as well. So thank you again so much for joining us. I think that's all for us today. And we'll see you at the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.